You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week, we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential through the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge, inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a Story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Well, hey now, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Uncorking a Story. I'm Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to have you join me on another exciting episode. I want to remind you to please follow Uncorking a Story on all social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, where you can find us at Uncorking a Story on all of those platforms. And just a quick note on YouTube, that platform has been a fantastic growth vehicle for the show, especially since we have upped the video quality of our episode. It's also become a very fun way for me to interact with the audience. Not a lot of the podcasting platforms let me have a conversation with listeners and YouTube does. So I'm very grateful for anybody who comes onto YouTube and uh, has a little conversation with me. I, I look at all the comments and try to respond to as many as I can. Uh, so please go to YouTube, uh, search for Uncorking a Scory and hit subscribe. I think I just said Uncorking a Scory. Uh, you won't find it if you type that in. You should uh, try Uncorking a Story instead. For you audio listeners, please subscribe, rate, and review Uncorking a Story wherever you get your podcast. Now today, I've got some exciting news for you. You are all going to learn more about Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, Alice, than you ever wanted to know. And I say that uh, somewhat in jest because her story really is fascinating. And don't get the thought that I actually interviewed her. She actually died many years ago, well into her 90s. Who I do have for you, though, is her biographer, Shelley Frazier Mickle. Uh, she's written a book called White House Wild Child, How Alice Roosevelt Broke All the Rules and Won the Heart of America. And uh, Alice really does have a fascinating story. And um, you're going to learn all about it when you listen to this episode. I, I learned a lot, uh, particularly for, for this time period, you know, Victorian uh, rules were kind of still in effect. And uh, she she really did break them. Uh, rule breaker, as it were. Um, but this show isn't just about books. It's about the storytellers behind those books. So I do want to spend a minute just talking about Shelley for a minute, because Shelley is a fantastic storyteller. Now, two things stood out for me 
in the course of this interview. And the first is how Shelley made a career shift. She went from writing fiction to writing nonfiction. But when she made that uh, change, she took all of her fiction roots with her. And when she pivoted to writing biographies, and I've, I've heard this kind of technique from a past guest as well. I, I interviewed a Pulitzer Prize winning author, Deb, Debbie Applegate, um, a while back, a couple of years ago. And, you know, she told me that when she started, you know, her when she wrote her first biography, her editor canceled the contract outright after she got, you know, the first pages. And um, that that made Debbie have to go back to the drawing board and learn how to write biography. That's going to keep people turning the pages. So she went and learned how to write um, suspense. She learned how to write mystery. She even uh, read essays on how to write pornography. And, and the, the thought there was, uh, you know, who who gets a reader to movement or to action, I should say, uh, better than pornographers. So um, that's one of the lessons I want to impart on you. Not, nothing to do really with pornography, but really, if you are writing nonfiction, remember to stick with classic story structure. And that's going to get readers to keep those pages turning, which of course is what you want. Um, we all want page turners, right? And biography should be written, um, as some would say, um, with, with novel structure. So you can uh, keep people engaged in the story. The other thing I want to talk about, which is uh, something that Shelley uh, told me in the course of this interview, you're going to hear it, but she had a teacher who said to her uh, that, that Shelley herself was too nice and was too good and didn't have enough darkness in her. And believe it or not, that was actually a criticism. It was not a compliment. And this particular person, I think it was a professor of hers, felt that writers needed to be dark. But Shelley didn't buy into that. She really wants to write what she calls from a center of love. And I just really love that sentiment. Now, I do believe that when we write with positive intent, and if you heard my last couple of episodes, you've heard me harp on this, but Shelley was the, you know, another person who brought this up. When you write from positive intent, Readers will have better stories. They're going to feel better about the stories that they're reading. They're going to be feeling better about themselves um, when the stories are grounded in love. And that just doesn't benefit the readers. It also benefits us as writers. So write from a place of positivity and you will feed your spirit. And that, my friends, is one to grow on. I couldn't help it. I'm a child of the 80s. I, I just couldn't help myself with that. I remember Ricky Schroeder doing those kind of one to grow on kind of interstitials uh, during Saturday morning cartoons, man, I'm just, I'm just aging myself, dating myself there. Um, but please remember that my goal with the show is to uncork stories from successful authors that will inspire you and just might make you a better writer. So that is your lesson for today. Uh, enough about all of that good stuff. Let's uncork Shelley Frazier Mickle's story. Jelly Frazier Mickle is an award-winning author who has published over a dozen books, which, along with her commitment to literacy and the power of story, led her to being nominated to the Florida Women's Hall of Fame in 2014. Her books have been New York Times Notables, Library Journal's Best Adult Books, and her nonfiction book, Barbaro, America's Horse, won a Bank Street Award. She joins me today on A Corking Story to talk about her latest book, White House Wild Child, How Alice Roosevelt Broke All the Rules and Won the Heart of America. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Shelley. Hey, Michael, I'm so glad to meet you and congratulations on this great podcast. Well, you can, you can, Google it and it came up as one of the highest rated. So I'm honored to be on here with you. Well, I'd like to know where you found it as one of the highest rated because I would like to tell all of my friends and family <laughs> about this. 
Because <laughs> they don't believe. <laughs> well, it's there. It's up there. And I appreciate that you're a novelist yourself, and we can talk a little craft. Yeah, we will talk so, some craft. We will talk some craft. Yeah, but before, kind of yeah, go ahead. Want a new? Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm I was. Lost. You, you're, you are taking over. You're taking over control of this conversation, Shelly. Um, I was saying when I. That's what my kids say all the time. It must, uh, it must be the Florida in you. I'm, I'm actually a native Floridian myself. Um, I, uh, I don't, I don't broadcast it to people, but I was born in a town called Plantation, Florida back in the, back in the seventies before it was, yeah. before it was, uh, commercial, it was all farmland and that's where I came from. Wow. Um, but enough about me. I want to talk about you. So Shelly, I want to invite you to tell me, uh, where does your story as an author begin? Well, a long time ago, because I'm really old, but my grandmother lost her husband in the 18 flu epidemic. So she came to stay for long visits with us because she was a lonely widow. And it was her job to get her to get me and take a nap. So it began like at my age of four and five. My name, my nickname was the Screaming Nini, which is actually the name of a World War II bomb. (laughs) <laughs> so she would read to me, and um, I fell in love with the sound And before I could even read. And I think she was worried I might be the first woman in the family to go to prison. Mm-hmm. So she started taking me to Sunday school. And there I heard stories that were older even than my grandmother. So this light bulb went off, and I said, gosh, there must be something about stories that we need, air or water or a good purse. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, I decided then I was called to be a storyteller. And then uh, when I began to learn to read myself, I was fascinated with what I call the magic of silent language. And we can talk a little bit here about, because I'm really big on this, about all the discussions about our mental health now coming out of the pandemic. And I think one of the best treatments for that is reading. Um, when I match my mind, with the silence of a printed page with that of an author and the story and characters. To me, it's like meditation. So I read early in the morning clock and I find it really sets my day in terms of confidence and ability to discern all these kinds of things coming at me, especially on this planet digital planet I'm now living on, which seems like I've been transported to a new world. So anyway, I would like to um, encourage people to treat your anxiety and our, and calm our minds by just that moment of silent reading. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nice little way to take a break from the day and anything that's bothering you yeah. and, enter, and enter a new world, you know, enter, have, have a little adventure that you might not be able to have otherwise i i completely agree with you and and i also think right. and i'm curious as to to your take on this shelly um so reading is therapeutic but i'm curious for you in what ways might writing be therapeutic well again it's a uh, uh, communion with my own mind and imagination i just love words and language and i have a facility When I began to write, I could write words that I couldn't even pronounce. So I've always said the words are in my fingertips because we were either writing with a 
pencil or later with a keyboard. So I'll tell you about chapter two, since I felt called to be a writer, a storyteller. Chapter two was, where do you go to college? How do you learn that? There are no prescriptions for becoming a writer. In my day and age, there weren't even MFA master's degrees. It was like, you're cut loose in the world and you have to figure out how to do this. So I did something really crazy um, and really wonderful. You need to think back about how you feel when you're 18, how brave and lovingly stupid you are. So I decided to go to the University of Mississippi because I knew Faulkner lived near the campus and I knew he had been awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. So I wrote him a letter. I told him I was coming. So in a little town like Oxford, if you just put on the envelope, William Faulkner, Oxford, Mississippi, he will get it. You know, those little towns and post offices, they know everybody. So I'm sure he got it. So I wrote him and I told him I wanted to be a writer and I had heard he knew a thing or two about that. So I was coming to the University of Mississippi and if we happened to uh, cross paths, I hope he would come over and introduce himself. So then he died a few months before I arrived and I took it personally. I thought he'd gone off to great lengths to avoid me. So I was hanging there with uh, this desire pent up desire. It's almost like a kerosene explosion. The desire to write and to start publishing at an early age and to follow the role models of people we studied in American literature. So I was on that rail and I went everywhere after that to study writing that I could. I went to Harvard um, Extension School and Night School and Wellesley College and Bumped into everyone and then, but I wanted to, um, I didn't want to miss out on anything in life. I wanted to get married and have children. I didn't want to miss that. And also at that time, you know, women writers who were successful did not have children. It was a big decision. So I got married and had children and uh, worked all the time on short stories and publishing those short stories. So over Many years, I had this 600-page tone manuscript that um, I had cut it up into like pie shapes of short stories and published them in literary magazines. But one day, I had a friend in Chapelville, North Carolina, who knew what I was doing all these years, and he handed that 600-page tone to Louis Rubin, who had sent up Algonquin Books in his backyard, a publishing house. Because he was a renowned uh, teacher of writing. I didn't know that at the time. So I got this letter from him. And he said, somebody handed me this 600-page manuscript. And I've been reading it. And some of it is the most god-awful stuff I've ever read. And then again, I come to a part and I start laughing and I can't stop. So here's a check for $300. And if you will work with me, we might end up with something publishable. Well... I found out later by reading between the lines, he uh, was deaf and his manner of communication was on those um, first computers, those tractor feeds. So he would send me notes that I would unroll like a roll of toilet paper, you know, and it just went on for pages and pages. And I never defend my work because I figure, you know, nobody's going to believe it. That's I'm a 
nice Southern girl. You don't disagree, uh, especially with a man. So anyway, I kept going. And then I opened the New York Times one day and read an article about him and learned that he was the most prestigious editor working in America. Wow. Next to, uh, next to um, uh, the one that worked with um, Maxwell Perkins. And Lewis Rubin was in that league, and I didn't know. So I sent him back one letter, and I said, yes, sir. That was all that was on the page. <laughs> so that, uh, working with him for a lot, two or three years, it was like a PhD for me, and uh, such a gift. I'm not a lucky person, but this is the moment of luck in my life. And so through Lewis's influence, we had that first novel, The Queen of October, was a New York Times notable book and it's still in print. So what, what, I yeah, I was going to ask, what are some of the big lessons you learned from him? Well, first of all, um, a novel has to have an emotional engine. And by that, uh, well, I started studying the great books that I most admire, Catcher in the Rye. It's, and I do have a flair for writing comedy and humor. Uh, and so it's kind of difficult to know what's going on underneath that. And when you study Catcher in the Rye, you realize it's all about grief. It's all about grief, about um, the death of the brother. And uh, why uh, join up with light when you're going to die? That's what it's all about. It's hilarious on the surface, but there's got to be an emotional engine underneath all of it that um, brings it all together with focus. And Lewis was always talking to me about focus. So that was the first thing I learned from him. And, of course, we cut out a lot of pages and a lot of uh, tracks. I still do that. I like to go off to wherever my curiosity is leading me. But the, um, most of all, he had great patience and belief in me, which I never could quite grasp. He read everything I wrote until for 20 years he died in 2013 and i just never believed the kind things he said to me he would write me all the time and say i have a rogues gallery pinned up over my computer and you were there along with Eudora wealthy and he uh started the career for annie dillard he taught her anybody any woman in particular that's been a successful novelist he had had a part in and it was so interesting to me because the first sounds he lost with his hearing are the voices of women so it's ironic that he developed so many women writers why why did you have such a hard time believing the compliments he was showering it sounds like on your work right because i'm a southern bimbo <laughs> i was raised <laughs> To me, a Southern bimbo, uh, no teacher, not an intellectual powerhouse. Some people say now I am, and I'll tell you why later. <laughs> but I'm not at all, and I never had that kind of attention from a professor. You know, I was um, I was a Southern bimbo, and that was what I was uh, headed off to be. So I find that I look back now since Lewis has left me for uh, greener pastures and think how privileged and honored I was to receive his attention in that way. But now what I have done 
in the last few years, I didn't want to quit writing. You know, to publish a novel today, I've even had a movie made for my second novel, and I've had great successes. Um, the third novel uh, was taught in all the schools here in Alachua County and won a Florida Governor Award. I've done all kinds of certain things and got to go to Hollywood and see that movie made for CBS. And it was successful. It's on YouTube now, free. <laughs> and the Russians love it. I don't know why. It's about what? children. <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to say, what's the name of that? What's the name of that second book? What's the name of the movie? Replacing Dad. And it's oh, about a family adjusting to divorce. I tried to chronicle what was happening to our culture, our family culture. It came out in 1973. And um, Mary McDonald who played in Dances with Wolves, a wonderful actress, read the book and called CBS and said, I want to do this. So it was quite a, a ride, especially for me, because it was a three-week shoot, and I went out for the second week. To have an author on set is terrifying for the actor. So they yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Held up, uh, the second week. But um, the funniest thing was, and let me interject this, because all novelists will appreciate this first of all if you don't sell your novel you get fired so that happened to me and i had kind of had to start all over and um so what i decided to do was go to npr and try to become a storyteller or what they call a commentator my husband calls it a sweet tater <laughs> instead of a commentator so i became a sweet tater on my local NPR at uh, University of Florida, because if you can tell a story in three minutes, you're going to be a better writer at anything. So I did that for like 10 years. And then one day I got a call from Washington, D.C. in the morning edition uh, NPR there. And I was a comment, a sweet tater for them yeah. for six years. <laughs> so anyway, I did make me a much better writer because I'm quick. If you can tell a story in three minutes and have some laughter and a point, you know, like a little essay come up, you know, you're getting a lot of skills. But recently, after a long career, I decided I really didn't want to stop writing. So to publish a novel today, you have to be cool. And all my coolness, if I ever had it, has certainly rubbed off. And my children vow for that. They're always telling me to sit down and be quiet. So I decided I would switch to writing nonfiction. So um, my husband, uh, we're, we're, the reason we moved here to Gainesville, Florida, is he's a pediatric neurosurgeon. And um, he had trained under Joe Murray at Harvard. And Joe Murray was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize for performing the first successful kidney transplant. So my husband suggested, he said, you know, that story about Joe doing all that good stuff with a kidney can <laughs> make a good story. So I started researching it and I thought, surely uh, David McCullough or Walter Isaacson has written this up already because it's considered one of the greatest contributions to humankind in the 20th century. Big deal. So I found out no one had written it up for the general public. And I called his children, got their permission to write about this. And the, now the real funny part, I told you I was not a good student. I made a C in college zoology. And yet I took on thinking I was 
could pull off explaining the immune system because all the deal about a kidney is a rejection. So, and there are two Nobel Prize winners in this. That Peter Medwar is considered equal to Galileo for what he learned about the human body. I took it on and I was just determined. And David McCullough, I heard, said somewhere when he took on the writing about the Brooklyn Bridge that he hated math and he didn't think he could ever pull off writing that much about engineering. But he said he was so filled with a passion that he overcame all of his weaknesses. So apparently, from what people have told me, I'd pretty much the same thing because we had to fact check this book. So if I can see you're ready to ask another question. Yeah, no, yeah, no, I'm curious, like, because I think that there, there is something there, you know, not, not going in as an expert, I think helps you communicate the story or write the story in a way that the average reader can understand it. Did, 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 do you agree with that? Is that, is, is that, a, yes, is, is that, that was my comfort? Uh, that was my comfort all the way through. I kept telling myself, if you can understand this and write it clearly without making a mistake or fictionalizing any of this in any way, you will be doing a service. I always say I like to earn the air I breathe. I'm very driven to trying to put something in the world that is of value to many people, if not just a few. So I kept going way and um, it, it done really well. Uh, it's called Borrowing Light. And then out of that came the Alice book because part of my research for the Borrowing Light was to see how many people, historical care, uh, figures, and also um, Charles Dickens had so many characters in his novel who suffered from kidney disease. They called it dropsy, the collection of fluid. So anyway, uh, one of those I came across that was historical figure was Teddy Roosevelt's first wife, Alice Hathaway Lee, was diagnosed with Bryce disease when she entered labor with little Alice. And she died when little Alice was only two days old. And even making it even worse was that Teddy Roosevelt's mother died in the same house on the first floor on the same day. So there were two funerals. And little Alice was baptized like the third day after those funerals. And Teddy Roosevelt could not look his daughter in the eye or even say her name. Yeah. She was after her mother. So I wanted, I said, there is my book. I want to study the effects of grief on this child. And I don't, you said you didn't know anything about Alice, but I'm about getting ready to tell you. Well, I, I don't know anything about Alice, but I know a lot about grief. <laughs> so um, oh. I'd love I'd love to know a little bit more about uh, Alice Roosevelt. Well, from that moment of uh, her father's silence, uh, Alice interpreted that as his disapproval. So she began doing everything she could to, I say, to get back at him. Also to get his love and attention, but also to neatly, you know, when she was mad at him, she was wounded deeply. So I'll go into a lot of this because it's, uh, first of all, doing the research of this and being a commentator, um, 
a storyteller on NPR, I was so aware that I had to have every word documented because I had written fiction for so many years. So I was really hysterical about having the nonfiction police come get me. So I uh, footnoted every sentence and documented everything I did. But I said, I've got to make this compelling. So I wrote, I'm writing narrative history now. Modern life was narrative history. This is too. And I used the structure of a novel. And not many narrative historians do that. But I worry a lot about it from what Lewis Rubin taught me. You know, of you've got to have narrative drive. You've got to use foreshadowing. You've got to have a crisis, a denouement, all the structure of a novel, because that's the art of storytelling. And whether or not I should do that, I can't help but do that. So these two books that I've written of narrative history, a read like novels. And recently we have a journalist here in town who asked me to write about the Alice book. And he was the first person on the planet to read it. And he called me up and he said, you made a lot of this up, didn't you? Because it reads like a novel. And I said, oh, no, they would lock me up in jail if I did that. Can you ever imagine what that would happen? But it, I take it as a compliment because I do have a lot of tension. And the way I do that, um, I can tell you a little bit later about some of my craft of how, what I did. But let me tell you a little bit about Alice so you'll be intrigued with her. Okay, so, and one of the things I want my readers to pay attention to, I'm very dedicated to the fact of what we're living through with our politics today and the uh, dangers to our democracy. So a reader can look at this book and see how things that happened in Teddy Roosevelt's presidency are uh, not coming back, but they can be a guide. And, um, I um, got the help of a great, great historian, one of our greatest. He's now 90 years old. And he told me that we live with delusion until history changes us. And I believe that's true. So every night, and it's my side order, a, a joke here is every night I put a big history book on my bedside table. So if I die in the middle of the night, it'll make me look good. But I'm trying to get out of my delusion. So here's the first one I want you to look at it when you read Alice. Teddy Roosevelt became president through the assassination of William McKinley. And the reason, the moment that it happened, um, Teddy Roosevelt yelled out, they're not shooting a man, they're shooting government. Because anarchy was sweeping around the world, which, of course, ended up sparking World War One. But um, he became, you know, you can't leave that vacuum of the presidency long at all. So they rushed him to take the oath. And everybody knew he had six children. Alice was the oldest because she was from another wife. And then he started another family with his childhood sweetheart he did care of and had five more children with her. But no one in Washington, D.C. or the journalists knew really about Alice. So here we go. Since I'm a novelist, I'm going to paint this scene for you. Alice arrives on the train in Washington, D.C. with her father. And she on the platform. She's 17 years old. It's 1901. And the first flashbulb cameras are now in use. And I understand they kind of send off a powder after the bulb explodes or whatever happens. 
So Alice gets off. She's wearing a wine dress and she has a bouquet of violets in her waistband. And the violets sway as she walks. And she's 17 years old with budding sexuality and absolutely drop dead gorgeous. She never smiled in public because her father was known for this toothy grin and she didn't want to ever look like him. But anyway, over a night, she became the most photographed woman in the world. She was our first Princess Diana and later our obsession with Jackie Kennedy. And then today I'm equating her with the influence on a whole generation of young women as Taylor Swift. Because when Alice started going out on the street, young women would surround her and applaud. She was like the first glorious Dunham before there was glorious Dunham. But the difference was Alice was pathologically shy. She never spoke in public. She lived even to 96 and gave only like one speech in her whole life. She was very shy. It was her physical beauty. And then her antics. I found this moment in her childhood that I think explains a lot of her realization that she could do so much by passive aggression. So people came to Sagamore Hill when her brother was born, and it was like a party there of everybody coming to see the new baby. And in the midst of it, Alice stood up and she said, when I grow up, I'm going to give birth to a monkey. And everybody turned around, of course, and looked at her. And that's the beginning of Alice's antics. Okay, when she gets to the White House, she carries in her purse a copy of a constitution, a dagger, and a green snake named Emily Spinach. And when her father put on the congressional garden parties at the White House, by the way, Teddy Roosevelt was the first president to call it the White House. He renovated it. Up until then, it was the president's executive mansion. So she had these garden parties with the congressman, stiff and whatnot, self-absorbed. She would walk among them and take out her snake from her purse and wear it like jewelry. And she would let the snake crawl all over her gorgeous, sexy body and enjoy seeing the eyes of the men follow that snake. <laughs> she was bad without going over the Victorian culture, but it's just so much fun to think about that. So uh, that was the beginning of Alice, uh, young years. So uh, does that intrigue you in terms of oh, real yeah. life? Yeah, I mean, you, certainly, you certainly see her as a character and not as a historical figure. And she was both. Of course. And what amazes me is that today she has evaporated. Like you said, you didn't know anything about her. I'm just in awe. Like you think that Princess Diana a hundred years from now will be unknown. We don't know because we have all these devices now that preserve. But uh, Alice was right on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution. And so all of that... um, in fact, the telephone came in during her lifetime, cars, all of that. But what's fun to go through the book and see how um, other presidents we have have learned from Theodore Roosevelt. By the way, he was a genius. Growing up as a child, it said that he read sometimes three books a day. And even as an adult, and 
could recall whole sections of them by memory. He was absolutely a, a genius. And of course, he wrote, let many people know this, he himself wrote and published 40 books. And Alice always said the Roosevelt's gobbled book. That was the verb she used, which I love. And the other thing about them that I just fell in love with is Teddy Roosevelt took a bite out of life and let it dribble down his chin. They attacked being alive like you would not believe. So anybody that's having a little trouble coming out of the pandemic, we talk about all this mental health. If you want to see vigor and loving life and never complaining and doing this, that, and the other, you know, uh, the Roosevelt are the ones that you go to to have that. It's contagious. It's absolutely contagious. I'm, I'm thinking that they could have been a uh, a reality TV family had they been around, you know, a uh, hundred years later. Uh, definitely. The whole country fell in love with them. And uh, uh, T.R., Teddy Roosevelt, was the most popular man in America. The whole country fell in love with him. And when those six children and all their, their pets moved into the White House, People couldn't get enough of them. And yet, Alice could generate more newspaper print than her father. And it became a com competition between the two of them. When he told her she couldn't smoke under his roof, she climbed to the roof of the White House. And, smoked. and then she sent messages to all the journalists of where she was. So they wrote it up. She was always up to something. So um, her antics. And this is interesting what I learned through this. Um, first of all, when you write any book, and I'm always drawn to those characters who are changed completely, a transformation. I call it enormous changes at the last moment. And when Alice was 73, she had a searing moment that changed her whole life. To get there, though, I need to tell you that she, um, Married the Speaker of the House, Nick Longworth. In Washington, there's a Longworth building, and you can hear it on the news sometime. And they talk about the congressman having to have a meeting. They go to the Longworth building or whatever. But these people are still around. You know, it's just that it feels like they've evaporated. So she married Nick Longworth, and he turned out to be a flatterer and a terrible alcoholic. And he played around on her, so she played around on him. And she fell in love with William Burrow, famous senator, great orator, very handsome. And they uh, had a baby together, which was not really recognized during Alice's lifetime, but it's known now today. And to get his last name was B-O-R-A-H. And to get back at Nick, she said when the baby was born and became the most famous baby in the world. Unbelievable, this history that we have to sweep out from under the carpet. I, so, I know. It, it sounds like something that would be, you know, more appropriate for this day and age versus, you know, way back yeah. when. But I guess these things were happening then, too, that it maybe just wasn't yeah. uh, you know, romanticized as much. So Alan's to stick a pen in Nick. She went to him and said, well, I'm going to name this baby Deborah. And spell it D-E-B-O-R-A-H. <laughs> and we would have her lover's name in it. She can never stop. She punched back. And 
what you need to understand about that Victorian culture was that it was a time when women's names were never uh, in the newspaper, except when they were getting married or were already dead. So for her to um, be so prominent in the newspapers changed culture almost overnight. So um, Alice, that child that she had, Alice had her father's personality. You know, she said about him, he wanted to be the um, bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. He was an exhibitionist, uh, but a lovable one. Oh, God, you can't help but love to fall in love with Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> but she had that same personality, that fierceness, that desire to be front and center. So she hampered her child, Paulina, while always answering for her and smothering her. And then this combination of being famous and never being allowed to develop your own personality. And Alice took her everywhere. She'd take her to the Republican convention. And the journalist would come up to little Paulina and say, who do you want to be president? And she'd say, well, you need to ask my mother. <laughs> she was she largely deferred. Well, when Paulina was like 26 years old, she committed suicide with a drug overdose. And that woke Alice up. Alice was 73. And always structure my books by remembering what Faulkner, even though I didn't meet him, I know what he said to us as writers. And he said, don't worry about writing about the nuclear age. Write about the heart in conflict with itself. And that was certainly what uh, Alice experienced. She had a haunted childhood. No one ever talked about her mother. Her new mother, her stepmother was uh, jealous of the dead mother. So I have fun in the book talking about the fact that Alice Hathaway Lee was still there by the effect of her death on everyone. And there was a triangle, that a love triangle between the dead wife, Edith Kara, the new wife, and Teddy Roosevelt, and then Teddy Roosevelt's sister. Can you take any more? Because I'm. I, I mean, I ne now I need to know a little bit about the sister. I'm sorry, you're just going to have to tell me something about the sister. <laughs> yes, I, Bammy. Okay, this is the thing I'm most proud about the book because no one has unearthed Bammy like I have in this book. I'm so excited about it. Bammy, her she was the first Anna. Eleanor Roosevelt, all the girls like Eleanor Roosevelt married to FDR, they were all named uh, Eleanor. But Bammy was the first one, and they nicknamed her Bammy after the word Bambina. She was born with a hump on her back. And the most riveting thing about that, I hope you can keep up with all these asides. You see, I almost sound um, hyperactive or ADHD. I'm not. I just love these people, and I see how they're layered and affect each other like a novelist would. So anyway, Bammy, Mitty Roosevelt was the prototype for Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. And how that came about was Mitty was so beautiful and so charming and so vivacious that when Margaret Mitchell was working for the Atlanta Constitution as a young writer, they sent her to interview Mitty's bridesmaid, who was still 89 years old, because Mitty was so, uh, had left her legend. And Margaret Mitchell, listening to the descriptions of Mitty, it made her into the prototype for Scarlett O'Hara. Now, isn't that amazing? So Mitty 
Scarlett O'Hara's first child had a hump on her back, Bammy. And uh, their father, Theodore Roosevelt Sr., they called him Greatheart because he gave us the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the orthopedic hospital, which he started for Bammy. Those Roosevelts, that first generation, made their money with plate glass, selling plate glass during the building boom of Manhattan. Yeah. So Bammy um, was so brilliant by the time of 14, she'd read every book in her father's library. So he decided her to send her to France to be school. Do we still have enough time for this? We we got some time, and I, I have an observation, but uh, please continue. But in the South, when a woman cusses, we always say, pardon my French. But now I'm getting ready to street French for good. So, pardon my real French. That's infant real French. So Theodore Roosevelt Sr. sent her to Madame Silverstur's uh, school outside of Paris. And Madame Sylvester educated all the daughters of the statesmen of the world. They would send them to her to be educated because, and now I need a confession from you. If I tell you this, do you know it or not? Did you know that at that time, it was believed that if you educated young girls, they would, you would hamper their fertility? Did you I, know that? I did not hear that. And I hope it's not true because I have uh, two very well-educated young girls in my life. <laughs> my, my two girls, my two daughters. So. That changed. And I want grandchildren. I want grandchildren someday. I hope you're, I hope this is uh, an old wives tale. Well, we corrected it and I may as well inject here uh, all these conversation about history and our slavery history. You look at how you correct it. You just don't let the darkness sit there and say, we're going to silence it. You know it, and you, then you start studying how it was corrected. So all of our, the seven sisters, the colleges in America, grew out of that disbelief. Oh, no, you're not going to hurt young women by educating them. So Madame Sufferstur certainly didn't believe that. So her program, get this, she in her school these young women were introduced to a philosophical idea. Madame Silverstur was a child of the Enlightenment. Her father was big in the French Enlightenment at the time. And so they studied philosophy. No idea was off course. So in the morning, these young women would be introduced to a philosophical idea and told that they would go lie down after lunch for an hour and come up with an original opinion about that idea and then at four o'clock they had tea with madame servistur and discussed the idea in either french or german so madame servistur's idea was brace yourself are you ready because my I'm, editor i'm, I'm bracing Mark right now out. i don't know about you but i'm having damn fun okay so <laughs> madame servistur believed deep down that women would run the world through influencing me. So when they were so educated and she wanted them to know all the political ideas and philosophies to work toward justice, bettering the world, helping the human being evolve. So uh, before they graduated, she took them to Paris 
got their hair done, had a dressmaker figure out what was the best for their figures, and then sent them out into the world to influence men who held the power. Isn't that fascinating? I'm wondering how how well it worked. It's still working, but we have a few (laughs) barriers. But Teddy Roosevelt described when he went to the train to pick up his sister, and we adored. She was two and a half years older, and he knew how brilliant she was. Uh, She got off the train with a new hairdo. He didn't even recognize her. And she'd always been domineering, but they taught her to practice conversation as an art. And they said that when they ever went to, uh, in old New York, these um, parties, all the young men, even though Bambi was not particularly attractive, all the men gravitated to her because she was such a great conversationalist. There was no subject she could not talk on. And she made everybody uh, feel empowered. So she was the one that engineered Teddy Roosevelt's whole political career. And when he became president, she had a house in Washington they called the Little White House because he had his cabinet meetings there. And he never did anything without going to her and talking it over first. And she was like his secret advisor. Now get this. When Teddy died, she got all the letters she had written to him and scratched out all the political advice she had given him because she wanted to disappear. And uh, she so loved her brother, uh, she didn't want to in any way impinge his successes. And, you know, um, this is the perspective in history of Theodore Roosevelt. Lincoln said or believed that if he could keep the country from breaking apart, it would one day be the most powerful nation on earth. He had vision. This is what we have to realize. He had vision. And Teddy Roosevelt was the first president to fulfill that prophecy. He realized, and Bamie told him, that the world is ruled by navies, that Britain was the most powerful nation in the world. Because it had the greatest navy. So Teddy Roosevelt built it up. And as the last act of his presidency, he sent the American Navy around the world to stop in all the powerful harbors to make that statement that America had arrived equal. But to me, this is just riveting history. I know I've talked your ear off. No. Uh, yeah. When you delve that far into the research, you really get caught up with all of this. Well, I can I can tell you definitely have a passion uh, for for the Roosevelts, uh, and, and you know not just Alice. Um, it's uh, it's all right. of them. Uh, it's all of them. I I think that they need to make a reality show, or at least some kind of you know maybe a scripted drama called Those Darn Roosevelts, um, and really based <laughs> on your source material. Because there's something that sounds very entertaining and I think fresh and new because it doesn't, um, you know, I don't think many people know this, all these characters, this, this story. I think it's, I think it would be fascinating. And I maybe saying reality TV show is, is is not, uh, not necessarily the right vehicle, but, but something, I mean, if they have the crown, um, why not the Roosevelt? I think that would be very interesting. Well, I got, as you can tell, I got caught up in it and it's complex. But once you start on these, uh, 
trails of who married whom, who influenced whom, and knew these secret, secrets. See, I love the secret, you know, of Mammy uh, being such a huge part of the success of Eddie Roosevelt's administration. To me, that's oh, yeah. just riveting. And she couldn't vote her whole life. Um, I hate to say it, but she uh, and even Eleanor Roosevelt, young in her life, said, don't give the vote to the women. It will only multiply, multiply the stupid vote. <laughs> hey, believe that about themselves. You know, they were afraid of the power, but they really wanted to influence. So at the end of Alice's life, people, uh, all the podcast hosts have asked me, what was their, her legacy? Well, other than the fact of showing how you can change completely, because Alice took her granddaughter after her daughter dies of drug overdose and raised her with all the love and unconditional love that she'd always wanted for herself and felt she did not give. So she um, did that toward the end of her life and died at 96. But uh, her real legacy is she encouraged women to like Princess Diana and Taylor Swift to handle criticism and to have a desire to be a force in our culture. So uh, Alice could not vote until she was 36. But in the 1920 presidential election, 126 million women voted. So in some ways, that's part of her legacy because she encouraged women to uh, break the rules. She never wanted to be bad and embarrass her father completely, but she sure um, stuck needles in him, and it was not acupuncture. They were painful. <laughs> well, I mean, she was looking for his attention and his approval at some point. I mean, some, you know, you, you yeah. grow up with a, a dad like that who, um, you know, doesn't doesn't give you what you're looking for as a child. You're going to find a way right. to, to, to get noticed, and it sounds like that was the root of it. Um, right. Of course, growing up in this era um, or this atmosphere where there's grief all around her and she she might be considered a, a black sheep to her stepmother because, you know, she's the one who's from the first right. marriage. And, and she's exactly you know, all those complications. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think about this. There was not any documentation of it, but uh, think about her birthday. How do you celebrate a birthday when it's the day that your mother and grandmother die? Yeah. Well, there were never any stories, good stories about her birth. She felt kind of loose in the world. But, um, and she had this amazing intellect. They didn't send her to the same school they sent Bammy. And I have my own read on that. Is that, uh, and part, uh, part of writing this narrative history is I invite my readers to say, could this have been why? Edith was. Uh, always felt poor and she was always worried about money. And so I don't think they ponied up the money to uh, educate Alice as she should have been. Of course, yeah. Alice said, if you make me go, I will shame you. I will do something outrageous. And so even when they were packing her bag with clothes to send her off to some boarding school, she threw a fit. <laughs> did, did, is her, is the granddaughter still around or has she since passed? She is, and I have a little side story about that. Yeah, I was curious um, if you, you got to meet her for this project. Well, I uh, got a company that would find her phone number, locate her for me, 
And when I got that, she never answered the phone. Uh, I thought I would need to interview her for those last years in which Alice turned good and became the person she never wanted to be, but found out that it was the best person to be, especially at the end of her life. And um, I was desperate changing fields from being a novelist to a narrative historian to find someone to endorse this book. Because as you know, if you don't sell a book, you're in um, author hell. <laughs> anyway, I was desperate to find some people with uh, gravitas to endorse this book. So when I wrote Borrowing Life and the American Science Association chose it as a book award finalist. So from that, I got to join Biographers International. So I looked on the emailing list and I saw Jonathan Alter. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's the biographer of Jimmy Carter. And he's very prominent in our culture because he was a journalist that has traveled with politics his whole life. I think he was the editor of a Newsweek or Time, one of those. And um, he uh, sent him an email and he answered me within like three minutes. And he said, I've always been fascinated with Alice. And about 10 years ago, I had tea with her granddaughter in Washington, D.C., because the mansion was still there at that time. And the granddaughter um, talked about Alice and how much she loved her. And then Jonathan Alter said, do you know that they have a play uh, in New York about Eleanor Roosevelt and Alice Roosevelt? And I said, no. And he said, well, I went to see it. And I walked backstage to talk about to the playwright, and she said she had the same experience you did, that the granddaughter would not answer the phone. And finally, the word got back to them that the granddaughter loved Alice so much, she doesn't want her antics to be the center of her story. And I can understand that. Sure. And I feel like I've, I have honored that. And I want my readers to know that. Not only can we change, but people love us for the way that we have changed and want to protect that reputation. Alice right. was me. She grew mean in her middle life and at the end of her life before she raised this granddaughter. She even said when they unveiled, Johnson was the one who unveiled a statue of Teddy Roosevelt in Washington, D.C., and people asked, Alice, what she thought, and she never spoke in public even then. She refused the microphone, but she said to a journalist, I like it. It's okay, but you have to remember, I specialize in meanness. <laughs> well, you know, you bring up a good point because there's, there's, there's no a Christmas carol without Scrooge being a jerk through most of that story, right? You need to have right. that, that big moment at the end where he has done a complete 180 and has changed, and it sounds like you were able to execute that with Alice. Yeah, I was aiming for that. I had a a teacher in college uh, when I started turning in my first fiction. I had a couple of people at the University of Mississippi go nuts and think I was going to be the next new uh, Eudora Wealthy or whatever, and it was very flattering. But I had a teacher take me off to the side, and he said, "Your view of life is too." warm too good you know you need to play with the dark side but you know what i've never been able to play with the dark side 
Yeah. Uh, everything I write is right is written from a center of love. And I wanted this Alice book to uh end on that note of um the goodness. I'm always looking for how the human being can be better because we have a hard time even being a little bit nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I love that notion of your intention coming from a center of love. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that being the root or the sort of the foundation with which you start writing. I think it's, I think that's beautiful. I don't think the world has to, I mean, we have enough, you know, cynical stories yeah. out there. We have enough people trying to do hit pieces. And um, if we are looking to better our mental health through reading, if, if your writing is coming from a center of positivity versus a center of negativity, then the reader is going to walk away with a completely different experience. I agree. And I'm not ashamed of it now. In fact, I glorify in it. I always want to look. I was very affected by hearing David McCullough say after he wrote um, the Jonestown flood that he wanted to write a book about goodness. And that's why I was uh, very attracted to the story of the kidney transplant. Because all those men wanted to do was alleviate suffering. Sure. That alone is worth a book. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and, uh, and all of, yeah. I was going to say, and, my nephew, my nephew is a, a beneficiary of a kidney transplant. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, wow. uh, so we, we, I know my family's personally very grateful for, for that work and, yeah. and you telling that story. Yeah. Well, when you see what they went through, um, and it's a riveting story because it's all in World War II. And they were sharing uh, um, research and experiments across borders of countries that war, which relates to what we're seeing today. Yeah. The release of the hostages in uh, Gaza. So these stories come back, but the purpose is to learn from them, to make better choices, not just to see that we're reliving history over and over. We're not. In the Teddy Roosevelt book, I saw so clearly uh, JFK, President Kennedy, copying Theodore Roosevelt. Of course, JFK was a student of history, and you could tell that he studied him in several instances that aren't in the book. We cut him out, but you can see... Um, like, for instance, real quick, uh, Teddy Roosevelt knew that his greatest adversary would be uh, the German Kaiser, who was a little bit off. He had a horrible temper, and he, they thought he was a little bit insane, if not a whole lot of thing. And so he made a very harsh comment to Teddy Roosevelt. He said, one day my German soldiers will walk down the Manhattan Street in front of the Roosevelt Mansion, and we will own you. Where have you heard that before? So uh, at one point, the Kaiser decided he was, wanted a colony in South America and was just going to um, disrespect the Monroe Do Doctrine, which says, keep your hands off of us in the Americas, and we'll keep our hands off your colonies over there. So he disregarded that, and he sent the German Navy towards South America to get himself a colony. <laughs> and Theodore Roosevelt sent out our pitiful little Navy, and then he gassed up the presidential yacht like he was going to be on it, too. 
And they all went out there and the German Navy turned around and went home. Where have we seen that before? The Cuban mm. blockade. Uh, JFK um, uh, imitated that. We learned so much from that. And then the other ingredient, though, that was added that we're starting to understand today is that Theodore Roosevelt said, when you have an enemy, you have to help them save face. So he went to the um, embassy, the German embassy, and gave a talk. And everybody wrote about it. And he talked about, you have the greatest literature in the world. You're the greatest people in the world. And he delivered it in butchered German. And he didn't care how he sounded, but he was speaking German and telling them all how great they were because he just shamed them before the world and sending back this Navy. But there's so many things in this history that we can recognize in terms of making us better citizens of the world. Sure. And and my goal with the show is to to make my listeners better writers. One thing I'm curious about, I know we, we spent a lot of time talking about the Roosevelts, but I just want to spend our last couple of minutes talking a little bit more about you, Shelley. And what I want to know is you, you made a pivot from writing fiction to writing nonfiction. And I'm curious, how how did that go at first when you were when you were making that change? And what brings you more joy? Does one of these genres bring you more joy than the others? Well, I hate to say this, but after writing novels, which can be torture, because you're going to end up with an editor sooner or later, your agent sends it to an editor and the editor writes back, I don't believe a word of it. So it was a great comfort to me to write a narrative history with these dramatic moments and no one could question it because I have it documented. So, and I had so many instincts after writing novels. I understand narrative drive. And for a while, I floundered. And then I discovered that what makes narrative drive is chronology. One minute pushing up against the next. And, you know, to end every chapter with what's going to happen on the next page, I call that, that's narrative drive. So what I discovered to do, and this is my technique, and I offered it to anyone who wants to copy it to write a narrative history or a nonfiction book. And uh, I use uh, secondary sources. I don't have many primary sources. So I will have like four or five books on the Roosevelt. And then I found this one about Bambi that um, they made a memoir from her letters to her son. So I put them all together. I decide on the uh, event that needs to be written at the beginning of the book. And I put about four or five books together and take a little bit from each of that event in that book and put them together as my own. And um, here's another admission. I already told you that I'm not a very good student, but I'm too lazy to take notes. So I have developed or tried to in my old age a photographic memory. And so when I read about an event in one of the books and put it next to the other book, I remember the pages on which they are and uh, blend in. Like I found out, this is a prime example. Ken Burns made a wonderful PBS special on the Roosevelt's. And in it, in the film, he says that Alice sat at the dinner table in the White House with Booker T. Washington. And that 
exploded into a national scandal because of racism and the fear of miscegenation, which is behind all of it. You know, a white girl and a black man were not supposed to be within 10 feet of each other unless the black man was a slave. <laughs> That's our dark black history for real. But I discovered in my a reading of Bammy and all the other resources that she was actually at Bammy's house during that dinner party. And so had it been, been uh, written with it, that era. So I was able to put that in my book, which is illuminating. And of course, one of the differences that I could talk about, which I'm not real big on, but I'm a female writer and I look at things differently. And I'm beginning to realize that a little bit more now because I got into this discussion with Jonathan Alter, who is a big um, Roosevelt fan too. And, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, FDR had an affair. Uh, you probably know this with Lucy, Mer Lucy Mercer. And when Jonathan Alter and I were emailing back and forth about that, I said, you know, I blame Lucy for that because she could have stopped that any point and walked up. Uh, Jonathan Alter wrote me back. He said, I've never seen that from a female viewpoint. I never thought about that. I identified with FDR, meeting this beautiful woman and having an affair with her. But she said, you're right. Lucy was a homewrecker. And there's something to be said about what uh, is your lens yeah. that you're seeing it through. And so I'm becoming more aware of that in my old age. And, and well, seeing it from being valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Shelly, this has been a, a fun and enlightening conversation. You know, you talked well, about the enlightenment. You, you referenced the enlightenment before, and this has been enlightening. Uh, Shelly, do you have a website or any place that people can find you online if they want to look you up and find out more information? Well, we say, uh, I took my website down what Simon and Susher used theirs, but um, I I always say that you Google me, and that sounds really raunchy, but it's what we do to each other today. <laughs> and uh, a bunch of stuff comes up now, especially with the White House Wild Child book. And you can see what kind of trouble I'm in, have been in. And I always add, but you know, I have yet to be caught. <laughs> Very good. I will um, I will put that link to the Simon & Schuster page, though, in case my uh, listeners want to. Uh, look a little but uh, on Amazon, I would love to have more reader uh, reviews, and that's a good one there to refer to. Absolutely, I will put the link to uh, to the book on Amazon, uh, so people can just tap on that in the show notes and uh, and then leave. You've a... been so dear. You're just wonderful. <laughs> I think you're the age of my son. <laughs> well, how, well, now let me ask you this, because now we'll see how much trouble you might be about to get into. Yeah. How old is your son? 46. Oh, see, now, see, that's a good answer. That's yeah. a good answer because 46? I am, I am a little older than that. I'm, uh, next, ne let's put it this way. Next year in 2024 will be a very big birthday for me. 50. That's right. You, well, you're very well preserved. Well, I think it's the lighting in this hotel room, to be honest with you. I, I think it's, it's, I'm just going to well, take, take these your, lights. I'm this is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to put these lights in my suitcase and uh, hope the Hilton doesn't find out. Some free advertising. Well, now that you've confessed, 
Shall I confess? My lighting's not quite that good, but on Monday, when's your birthday? My birthday is in August. No, it's in August. Okay, well, I'm three months from turning 80. Okay, there you go. I wouldn't have said 80. I would have said 79. (laughs) I thought that you are a dear. (laughs) (laughs) This has been great fun. Uh, I'll have to get your uh, novels because uh, they've sound they've got to be fun if you wrote them. Well, they are. <laughs> they they definitely have some humor in them. Um, and good. like you, I like you. I don't write from a place of darkness. I always write from a place of uh, uh, wanting to to have a little fun and uh, certainly tell a story. Um, there might be a right. little bit of darkness in the story because I do write about murders, uh, but they're not. Uh, it's not gory. It's not. And there there is also a couple of of pure comedies in there too so it's not all about murders and mystery but um we've got a great podcast i congratulate you on having it because i know it's a lot of work well it's an honor to have been here today thank you thanks for listening to uncorking a story if you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about mike Go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.